Thank you, Russ. And I want to welcome all of you who are here, particularly our guests from all around the world. It's a tremendous joy to have you with us at the Master's College. And we also want to welcome those of you who are here for our VIEW weekend. Special guests and students and even a few parents, I think, are here. And I also want to welcome our new chairs. Aren't you glad about our new chairs that we have in chapel? <laughs> that is... Uh... That is a great blessing, and we're grateful to God for a gracious person who uh, made it possible for us to have new chairs. So we're very thankful for the Lord putting that on the heart of someone who cares very much about our college. Also, just excited to uh, welcome all of you who are part of our college family, faculty, staff, and students as well. I want to share just a few thoughts with you briefly this morning. Uh, last time we shared together in chapel, you remember that I told you we wanted to look a little bit at prayer and we were examining Daniel 9 and we're going to continue to do that. But because we don't have as much time as we really need this morning, I want to just leave that subject for today and share something that's just from my heart to you. Do you ever come to the place in your Christian life where you look around and you see the blessing of God and you sort of question whether you have a right to have that? I was flying on an airplane this week from Chicago back here and I began to think about how God had blessed my life, about how God had given me Christian parents, Christian friends, a tremendously exciting ministry, about how God had brought me to this college. And then I began to think about my life and what my life really was and how unworthy I am of the blessing of God. I remembered back to a few incidents when I was young that for the most part, would have disqualified me from any effective ministry or any usefulness to God at all. All of us have skeletons in our closet. But it isn't just the past. I look at my life even now and I ask myself, are you any more worthy now than you ever were? The truth of the matter is we are unworthy servants at best. And it makes me thankful for the kindness of Jesus Christ to put me in the ministry to bless me with so many good gifts more than I can even count more than I can even say thanks for and with that in mind I open my Bible and I'd like you to do that with me to the twelfth chapter of Matthew and I began to meditate on a very interesting section in Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, we have a quote from the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. It's about Jesus Christ. And I began to meditate on that as I was flying across the United States. And let me just share with you a couple of things that come out of that quote. It's in verses 18 through 21. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, speaking of Christ, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out. And the word cry out there is used of barking dogs or screeching ravens or uh, brawling drunks in other usages. It's the idea of screaming at people. It's the idea of being a, a brawler, of being a wrangler, a, a hassler of people. He will not do that. 
And then this most incredible statement in verse 20. A battered reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. What does that mean? In the time of our Lord, and even in the time of Isaiah, it was not uncommon for shepherds out in the fields to pluck a reed, a wild reed, and play a tune on it. If you were to go to the land of Israel today, the land of Palestine, you might even be able to buy such a little flute that is still being made with reeds in that part of the world and still being played by shepherds. I have one at home. But they're somewhat fragile, and depending upon the nature of the reed, after you played for a while and you sort of wore out your reed, it became a bruised reed, and the shepherd would commonly break the bruised reed, throw it away, and get another one. In other words, when it can no longer serve the purpose of providing a melody, it ceases to have a use, and the shepherd throws it away. But Jesus never breaks a bruised reed. Even though you come to the point in your life where you're no longer able to make a melody that's pleasing in his ears, even though it may be that you're not useful to him, he never breaks a bruised reed. A wick, the word in the Greek is flax, and they use flax like we use in a, in a little kerosene lamp. You ever seen a kerosene lamp that has a little wick in it? And you just kind of wind the wick up and light it, and, and it burns down, and sometimes it gets very, very low, and you have to wind it up a little further. Maybe you've seen one of those sort of flickering, and that's what he's talking about here. When you see a, a wick that is burned down, or even a wick in a candle that's so far down that it's just barely got any light at all. Jesus doesn't blow it out. He trims it and fans it to burn brighter. And the idea of the bruised reed, instead of breaking and throwing away the bruised reed, is he, uh, he does a little miraculous work on the bruised reed and plays a tune on it again. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience that I'm very grateful to God that he picks up a bruised reed and makes it have a melody again and then he doesn't blow out a smoldering candle. Aren't you glad for that? I'd like to identify myself with uh, one of the apostles who appears a little bit later in Matthew. Go to chapter 26 for a moment. And let me remind you of Peter. Peter certainly was a bruised reed who had ceased to have any kind of melody. He was certainly a flickering wick. In chapter 26, Jesus has been taken captive. Of course, the death of Christ is imminent. And we see Peter in that setting. And it's a familiar story of what we call Peter's denial. He is a classic bruised reed, a classic smoldering wick. And so Jesus warns them in verse 31 of Matthew 26. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, of course, I'll go before you into Galilee. In other words, I'll be back. I'll regather you, regroup you, and lead you again. Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Pretty boastful, isn't it? He says, I'll never be untrue. Here is the beginning of the believer's uselessness. It's called overconfidence. Peter thought he was invincible. He thought he would never be untrue. He thought he loved the Lord so much that nothing could ever turn him away from that. And out of his overconfidence, 
Jesus said to him in verse 34, I say to you this very day before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter reiterated his confidence and said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And Peter was such a leader that when he said that, all the rest of the disciples said the same thing too. He had the ability to strengthen everybody else, even though his strength was only verbal. In a sense, what you see there is such a, an attitude of overconfidence that it turns into defiance. And who is he defying here? Christ. He's saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I know you're God, but you don't know what you're talking about, you know. And then what happens later on in verse 40, he came to the disciples, Jesus did, and found them doing what? He was so confident that when he should have been praying, he was sleeping. You know, when you get in the right environment and you're right around Christ and you're right around all of his disciples, it's easy to get overconfident. It's one of the dangers of spiritual privilege. It's one of the dangers of being at the master's college. Overconfidence. And a sort of invincibility. Spiritual invincibility. I would never do that. And so instead of being concerned to pray and stay on guard, you go to sleep. And you know the sad story. It really comes to a conclusion, and perhaps we ought to note that conclusion in verse 69. Finally, Peter found his way outside the courtyard, and a certain servant girl, this is where Christ was being tried, said to him, You too were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. A little girl cuts down the leading disciple. He denies Christ. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no association with Jesus Christ. Gone are all the high and heroic claims. Gone is all the self-confidence, all the braggadocio, all the arrogance. Gone is the false courage. And Peter, the great dominant personality, cringes in lying denial. And it gets even stronger. He went further to the gateway, went over by the door in this courtyard and another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there this man was with Jesus of Nazareth and again he denied it only this time with an oath in other words he swore that what he was saying was true he was never with Christ now he not only deceives but he puts an oath on his deceit he not only lies but he swears that his lie is true and a little later verse 73 the bystanders came up and said to Peter surely you two are one of them for the way you talk gives you away and he began to curse and swear. What does that mean? It means he pronounced a damnation on himself. He cursed himself with the judgment of God if indeed he was not telling the truth. First he lied, then he lied and swore he was telling the truth, and then he pronounced damnation on himself if in fact he wasn't telling the truth. That's how deep he sunk. Was Peter another Judas? This is the pits. The difference between Judas and Peter is very, very carefully noted. When Judas was discovered, he went out and what? What does the Bible say? Hanged himself. When Peter realized what he had done, verse 75, he went out and what? And wept bitterly. With Judas, there was no repentance. There was just remorse. With Peter, there was repentance. Well, what about him? He is certainly a bruised reed, isn't he? 
I mean, he's not the instrument Jesus wants to pick up and play. He's certainly not providing a melody that's sweet to the ears of Christ. And he is at best a flickering wick. He's certainly not a bright light. What's Jesus going to do with this guy? By the way, James Stocker, who's written so many wonderful things about the life of Christ, said it is not our sins that make us weep. It is when we see what kind of Savior we have sinned against. And I think that's what Peter saw. What does Jesus do with this kind of man? Let's go to John 21 and just wrap up our thinking. And look at how Jesus dealt with a bruised reed and a flickering wick. John 21. Now I want you to note very carefully, we'll start at the beginning of the chapter and just go through very quickly some of the key things that are essential for us to see here. Jesus had sent the disciples to Galilee and told them to go into a mountain and wait for him. He had risen from the dead by now. Peter has not seen Jesus Christ but on just a few occasions. And Jesus, according to the record of Scripture, has not particularly spoken to Peter in a direct way. No formal restoration of this bruised reed flickering wick has ever happened. But the Lord gives them another test, says, go to Galilee and stay in a mountain. So they go into Galilee and they're in this mountain. Verse 2 says, there was Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel, and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples would be Peter and Andrew. So they're all up there. And Simon Peter says to them, what? I'm going fishing. Now, this is a, this is a sort of a final statement. I'm, I can't handle this ministry stuff. I can't handle sitting around waiting. I, I really don't think I can give my life to this. I'm going back to what I used to do. And they, there he is a leader. They all said, we're also coming with you like a bunch of rubber ducks. They all paraded down the hill. They went out and got into the boat which may be an indication that they went back to the very boat, the definite article telling us it could be the very boat that Peter once owned or still owned. He was taking up his old profession. Boy, what a flickering wick. What a bruised reed. The Lord told him, so simple, just go stay in a mountain. He couldn't even do that. I think partly because he had such a lack of self-confidence, because he had such a history of failure. And he was fearful. So day was breaking. And when the day broke, of course, it says in verse 3, they caught nothing all night. And Peter, I'm sure, would have gone fishing with the idea that he could catch things. After all, he was a professional fisherman. I may not be able to preach. I may not be able to herald the kingdom. I may not be able to do the work of, of uh, the Messiah. But there's one thing I can do, and that's catch fish. But he couldn't even do that because the Lord rerouted all the fish. None of them came near his boat. That would be one thing he would never be successful at. So day breaking, Jesus stood on the beach and the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. He is there now to confront them in their disobedience. They're supposed to be in a mountain. They're down fishing. Jesus said, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Which is not necessarily a good way to warm up the conversation with people who fished all night and caught nothing. And they answered him, no. They may have mumbled some other things under their breath, but they're not recorded here. He said to them... Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. They cast, therefore, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. Only the Lord controls the fish. 
My reaction, if I was out there and somebody said, cast the net on the right side of the boat, I would have said, what is, what is this? What do you mean the right side of the boat? Do you think the boat's standing still? Do you think the fish know the difference? Do you think we haven't tried that? But the power and authority in the voice of Jesus, they dropped the net on the right side. And the Lord just sent out a divine whistle and all the fish for many, many yards around just went Choo! to the boat, pulled them all in. And John was perceptive. He said, it's the Lord. <laughs> Peter, wanting to quickly get out of his disobedience into which he had led everybody else, dives into the water. This is the first guy in trouble and it's always the first guy back. He dives in and uh, starts to swim to shore. And the rest of the disciples are trying their best to get this net full of fish in while Peter's off swimming in to see Jesus to make his explanation, you know. So when they got out on the land, <clears throat> they saw charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land, went back to help them, full of large fish, 153. And although there were no uh, so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? They all knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them bread and fish. And this is the third time Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now get this. Peter not only failed in his denial of Christ, but even after the resurrection, when he had seen the risen Christ, he failed in his obedience again. And we say to ourselves, this is really a bruised reed. This is really smoking flax. This is a useless guy. And when they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does he mean by that? Well, these could mean these other disciples because Peter had said, if all the others forsake you, I never will. And he did. These could mean these nets and boats and waters and fish and the whole thing that goes with doing that. Do you love me more than you love that stuff? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, what? Tend my lambs. In other words, if you love me, do my work. Boy, that's tender, isn't it? I mean, I think if it would have been me, I would have taken an oar to the rear end of Peter. But Jesus has a gentleness and a kindness and does not break a bruised reed. He has a way of restoring that person to usefulness. So he said, yes, Lord, you know, I love you. And um, he said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then tend my sheep. Why do you think Jesus asked him three times? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. With tenderness and gentleness, he finds Peter in the midst of another overt act of disobedience. He's not only himself disobedient, he has led all the rest of the disciples into the same disobedience. And instead of taking out a rod and dis disciplining Peter, he is tender and he just pleads with Peter to love him. 
and to do His work. And in verse 19, He says to him at the end of the verse, Follow me. Follow me. Now let me just say this, young people. It's such a wonderful thing to know that God can use people who have periods in their life when they would render themselves useless. Aren't you glad for that? The Apostle Paul over and over again affirmed the fact that he was unworthy to serve Jesus Christ. But he picks up the broken and he strengthens the weak and he fans the flame that is growing dim and he strengthens the bruised reed so that it may play again. And I just want you to know that from the depths of my heart, I'm glad for that kind of a Christ. Because I would have been rendered useless to his service long ago, were it not for the grace that he shows in restoring those of us who fall. The end of the story finds Peter in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Look at it with me for just a moment. And all that brokenness and all that flickering seems to be in the past. Men of Israel, verse 22, Peter stands up in the middle of downtown Jerusalem with tens of thousands of people around. And he preaches, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. Now he's preaching Christ to the same people to whom he denied Christ. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Now that's an indictment. That's bold stuff. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Boy, what courage in front of all those enemies. He was denying Christ to a little girl and another servant girl and a few folks at the, at the home of the high priest when Christ was on trial. He was ashamed of Christ before those few people and now he boldly preaches Christ and tells the whole civilization of Jerusalem in, fact, in, in effect they have crucified their Messiah. And you remember the end of his sermon, how many people were saved? 3,000 people were converted. Now you're talking power, right? Can the Lord pick up a bruised reed and use it again? Can the Lord fan the flickering wick and use it again? You want to know something? Even that's not the end of the story of Peter. You know what happened to Peter on one occasion? He became the primary leader of the church of Jerusalem. He and his pal, John. And then another guy joined them, the brother of our Lord by the name of James. And the three of them were the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And they were the ones who were really used by God to lead that church. You want to hear something interesting? Peter took a trip to Antioch. It's recorded in Galatians chapter 2. And when he got to Antioch, he had the habit of eating with the Gentiles. Why? God had told him, hey, Jew and Gentile, one, no more distinction, no more ceremonies, Acts 10. So he would eat with the Gentiles. And then you know what happened? Some Jewish legalists showed up in Antioch. You know what Peter did? 
He refused to eat with the Gentiles. He was intimidated by the Jewish legalists who thought it was wrong to eat with Gentiles. And he fumbled and bumbled and stumbled again. And you know what the end of the story is? Read Galatians 2. The Apostle Paul was in Antioch and Paul says, I stood in front of Peter nose to nose and told him off in front of everybody. Now that's pretty tough stuff. I mean, Paul was an apostle come lately. Peter was the patriarchal apostle. But he stood in nose to nose and told him off because he was dissimulating is the word, because he was equivocating, because he was a hypocrite. When the Jews weren't there, he was eating with the Gentiles. As soon as the legalists showed up, he wanted to play their game. And he called him a hypocrite publicly. And there is his wick flickering again. And there the reed is broken or, or bruised again. Was that the end of Peter? Peter listened to Paul. And God used him to write First Peter, Second Peter. Which are a blessing to every generation that reads the Word of God. I just want you to know that from my own personal testimony and the affirmation of the authority of the Word of God, God picks up the broken and uses it to His glory again. And that gives all of us encouragement, doesn't it? Just know that God wants to use you in a mighty way. And we here at the Master's College want to be part of the process of fanning your flame and strengthening that reed. Let's pray together.